0: Welcome to the broadcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rod. Welcome to the broadcast. I'm very fortunate today to be joined by an amazing individual and lucky to say a good friend of mine. He worked for eight years with, with International SOS and now has ventured in to do amazing things in the health tech. Uh, his passion and, and love is finding ways to transform healthcare industry. He, like many expats, has a a very interesting sort of life story. He was born in Alaska and moved to Indonesia when he was 10. He's a third-generation expat. Dad moved to Malaysia on a boat when he was six months old. His mom was born in London, where I am today, and and she moved to the, the States when she was 10. So very multi- sort of a national family there uh chris garrett welcome to the broadcast.
1: hey doc good to be on with you
0: thanks thanks for joining me our our listeners at home be jealous for a minute and tell us where you're calling in from
1: <laughs> my current company we're a startup we have about 80 staff i am one i'm the only person lucky enough to actually be based In Bali, global pandemic, no tourists in or out. It's just been uh, desolate, empty beaches, empty mountains, no traffic. It's been a tough place to hold out the pandemic.
0: (laughs) Wow, sounds like a dream. And unfortunately, our our listeners can't see the video, but you have in your backdrop a what I would describe as a classically sort of beautiful palace, palatial layout, whatever it's called.
1: Yeah, that's another benefit. I was prior to this living in KL, where you can live in nice but very small sized apartments. And you move over here and for the same price, I have a three bedroom, three bathroom private pool villa two minutes from the beach where I walk with my son and wow about every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we be-
0: we better stop it there before we make everybody <laughs> extremely envious. Any topics. I think we could discuss, given your background and just where you've lived and, and the amazing stuff you've done, along those lines, you know, mental health is something that, that we've seen increasingly become an important part of healthcare. Uh, with the pandemic. There was a recent study, I don't know if you you saw on The Lancet, that um, looked at about 200 countries, and they monitored anxiety and depression in those 200 countries before the pandemic, so like a year before, and then during, and that line in the sand, sort of when it was declared a pandemic. So it looked at case numbers after, and across the board, it found the same thing. It found that there was a huge difference uh, before and after, so more anxiety, more depression, across the globe, not only, you know, low-income countries, high-income countries, middle, mm-hmm. and there was two populations that were affected the most. So one was young folks, so sort of the 20 to you know, 30-year-olds, and, and we kind of knew that from anecdotal evidence because, you know, they were robbed of, of you know, socializing, they, they, they didn't have the ideal workspace, especially if they're living with, you know, other roommates and so on. Mm-hmm. Um and they really craved that social interaction that they, they didn't have with 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 lockdowns because they didn't have families.
1: And a lot of younger um, people are working in the service sector, right? And exactly, supplementing their education while working at a restaurant or something.
0: Yeah, lost their jobs, you know, had to move back to with with uh, the the parents because they couldn't afford, you know, living. And the other population was was women. So they they broke it down by male female. Um, and there was a, a clear difference in in how much uh, cases have gone up with with female population. Hmm. So, and that you know has a number of sort of uh, explanations. You know, having to juggle family life with with also working from home, and mm-hmm. um, we saw things like domestic abuse cases go up during the pandemic in different parts of the world. Um, so, a lot of issues. So, I think if we combine the two, you know, maternal. Mental health, you know, women's health. Uh, I know you are very passionate about this, and so I thought, who better than Chris to sort of you know tell us his experience and and what he's what he's uh, involved with at the moment?
1: It may sound strange for a man to come on and want to talk about maternal yeah. health, but <clears throat> there literally is no subject I'm more passionate about. That does not mean it's an area where I'm an expert. But as you know, Dr. Rod, I went through a very personal experience with my wife after the birth of our first son, and it really just showed me how ill-equipped or how the healthcare system isn't adequately set up, especially in the part of the world where the case took place in, but to really identify and handle things around maternal mental health in the way that they need to be handled in. And uh, I'll walk through the case, but I'm, I'm really extremely passionate about it and after my wife and I went through that, both of us vowed together to try to do something when we had the means, when we had the resources, when we had the time to actually try to bring more awareness to what I think is a very neglected subsegment of mental health um, and, and very widespread. Uh, so if you want me to talk about the case, I'm happy to do. We're not shy. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, as much as you're comfortable with, with uh, sharing with, with the listeners at home.
1: Yeah. So as Rod knows, about four, almost four years ago, exactly, my son's birthday is in two weeks. Uh, we were based in Kuala Lumpur and we had our first child. Um, unfortunately, due to being in preach position, it was a emergency C-section. But apart from that, the pregnancy had gone completely smoothly. And in fact, without exaggerating, I think Ilaria was probably the happiest pregnant woman I've ever seen in my life. She was just beaming every single day super enthusiastic working out in the gym and exercising at like eight and a half months pregnant leading exercise (laughs) groups uh, with a gigantic belly and uh unfortunately it was like a switch was flipped immediately after the birth of our first son um which i'll get into there's there's different reasons underlying that but what we didn't realize we were stepping into at that time was something far beyond what everybody's heard of, which is baby blues, right? Everybody's heard of baby blues. Some women um, have a difficult time. um, And uh, usually after a couple of weeks, two to three weeks, what they call the baby blues seems to subside to some degree. We're stepping into a much, much darker, more intense and really life-changing experience of something called postpartum depression and psychosis, which neither of us had any experience or any understanding of. Alaria had no uh past history of mental illness or anything of that nature and truly it was just like immediately uh now we spent 3 days in the hospital and on the 3rd day we came home and I still have the footage of walking into our hosp into our apartment with our son and you look over and Alaria is just bawling now I assumed at that time that was you know just the emotion of coming home with the beauty of our first son and and all of those things coalescing well <clears throat> from that day forward for the next two weeks Alaria only slept on average one hour a day she literally couldn't sleep she tried to force herself to sleep i took control of everything and uh was looking after our son us being overly headstrong we didn't want any family members around we said we're going to do this all on our own no nannies no parents no relatives which was a major mistake uh, in retrospect (laughs) Uh, so i had to take time off of work alaria could not sleep now as you imagine the hormones the physical changes everything you go through as a woman when you give birth in and of itself plus the epidural the pain medication all of that stuff wearing off compounded by no sleep By day like seven, eight, nine, Alaria was just essentially beside herself. Extremely dark, she felt like her mind was shutting down and uh, eventually started having some very intense suicidal thoughts, extreme suicidality. And this story goes on a long ways. I'm just detailing the beginning now and I'll get to the other parts of it. But that's actually where I reached out to the best resource I thought that I had. which turned out to be right, which was you. Um, I let you know you what can. was... No, it's, <clears throat> it was a game changer for us. Reached out to you, and uh, you put us in touch with uh, a colleague of yours who also worked for International SOS named Dr. Joe. And prior to that, we'd been going back and forth to the hospital, speaking with the OBGYN, and he was handing her some basic tranquilizers and things like that, saying, oh, don't worry, it's just the baby blues, it'll go away. And we kept reaching out to him, and he was just trying to essentially say, oh, don't worry, this is normal, and, and shoving us to the side. But it wasn't until we spoke to Dr. Joe, who was kind enough, uh, who's an extremely busy woman, to get on the phone directly with Alaria, and Alaria could speak to another woman. <clears throat> did Alaria realize that she was dealing with something that had a name, something that was serious, and something that needed to be addressed? And so kind of in parallel paths, Dr. Joe ended up referring us to a, a man named Dr. Andrew, who is actually the head of the Malaysia Mental Health Association, an amazing guy. It took us a little while to see him because he also works for the immigrant detention facilities off of uh, Australia. So we had to wait for him to come back. And in that interim period, we went and met with one of the leading psychiatrists uh, in, uh, in the country and uh, went and saw him. And I can still remember. You know, sitting in the hallway, Laurie just sobbing outside the doctor's office, could not get her to stop stop crying, and she was so dark and saying horrible things, and went in and started speaking with this doctor. And what struck me first, if I can be blunt, is how chauvinist he was. He, he didn't really feel the need to speak to the woman. He felt the need to just speak to the husband. And rather than ask probing questions about her psychological state, what her internal narrative was, you know, what was she actually feeling? He was just speaking directly to me. And then he essentially asked her to step outside of the room so he could have a private conversation with me and said, look, uh, she certainly is suicidal. She's certainly in a bad way. And, you know, let me ask you a few questions. Does she like to shop? Does she sometimes go through mood swings? And kind of like, yes, uh, to both of those. It depends on what's going on in life. And he took that to create a closet diagnosis of her being bipolar. And again, this was that without him having even sat down for five minutes alone with her at all, uh, diagnosed her as being bipolar and me, I'm stressed out. I haven't slept. I'm highly concerned. I've been with this person since I was 18 years old. She's my best friend. I'm very worried. And I didn't know what to do, so I just proceed with his recommendation. He says you need to give her these medications, and he prescribed lithium. And so <clears throat> we returned home, and uh, she started taking the lithium. Things didn't improve, and actually, they got much worse. And now, uh, by, by
0: by the way, lithium is a very specialized, powerful drug. If if you don't prescribe the right right dose, it's not mm-hmm. the right diagnosis. Uh, it can be very dangerous, a lot of side effects. It's uh, Yeah, it's a tricky one.
1: Yeah. And of course, I didn't know those things. I'm not an expert. And uh, <clears throat> so she started taking them and not only did it not improve, it got much worse. And it was decreasing to the point where I could no longer leave Alari alone. And I had a job, but that was a, not even a close priority for me at this point. It's the the life of my wife. And and the son, uh, the mother of my son. <clears throat> and uh, so I essentially, for the following two weeks, was on 24-7 guard duty. I ended up hiring night nannies to look after our son. Um, but my wife reached such a state that I put her on the phone with her sister, who's an amazing person in and of, of herself, and she heard Alaria literally wailing. I mean, just wailing from the depths of her soul, saying she wanted to die, she was not fit to be a mother. She didn't had no negative feelings towards our son, thankfully. She was always affectionate with him. But she just felt this internal sadness and gloom taking her over that she didn't see a a role in his life. And she was begging me to allow her to kill herself. And I put her on the phone with her sister and her sister immediately in Los Angeles. And I mean immediately went home, packed her bag, went straight to the airport, bought the first ticket available and was in Malaysia within like 20 hours. I was at was at our doorstep. And so her sister showed up <clears throat> and her mom also ended up coming shortly thereafter. And we then spent this process of a good two and a half months of dealing with these different doctors. And, uh, you know, I was staying up at night. I had to hang doorbells on literally all of our door handles in case I fell asleep, uh, because we ended up catching Alaria trying to commit suicide. And, wow. uh, it was this extreme fight or flight type of a situation and on top of that having your first child and a job waiting for you to come back to and juggling all these things i was very stressful and uh we ended up meeting dr thomas uh sorry dr andrew and the guy was amazing he didn't want to take any money from us he did everything pro bono he let's just say didn't agree with the diagnosis or the prescription made by the initial psychiatrist who we had gone to see. He gave us a whole nother course and recommendation of treatment. And uh, that seemed to help stabilize Alari a little bit over time. But when I say over time, you're still talking weeks, weeks and leading into months of waiting and just waiting for this inner narrative that she had developed and, and her inability to sleep and all of these things to go away uh and they they stabilized a little bit uh but it was still unpredictable and we reached a point where we said okay it's time to go back to the us uh we need we need you to to get to a place where you're really well looked after um and dr andrew is amazing he was in and out of country so uh, my sister-in-law took alaria back to the us and uh, i followed about a week or two weeks later and um <clears throat> when we got there we found a therapist, very kind woman who had gone through postpartum depression herself. We took Alaria in to see her and uh she had a private conversation with Alaria then brought us in and said, "Look, I'm sorry to tell you this, but Alaria is one of the most suicidal people I've ever met in my life and you need to immediately take her to the emergency room. She's a threat to herself and you cannot guarantee her safety." Uh, you know, at your family home. We were in Idaho at the time where Laria's family has a, has a a summer home. And so we took her to a hospital <clears throat> in in the U.S., checked her into the emergency room. And this is where the learning and education started coming to me and to us about how widespread this actually was. Uh, when we're sitting there in the emergency room, you know, this was a an emergency room where they had to put a security guard to watch Laria overnight to ensure she didn't, do anything to herself i was asking the doctors and nurses and they were like you would not believe how many new mothers actually end up in the emergency room in similar similar situations they're extremely distressed extremely dismayed uh completely out of sorts suicidal they were telling us how common it was and again through this journey as we're telling people what's going on you start hearing oh that happened to a colleague of mine oh that happened to my cousin Oh, that happened to a friend um, <clears throat> in some of the cases shared with us led to actual suicide and this was so far beyond the baby blues that i had heard that it was just staggering to me that as you're preparing yourself as a as a new parent and and going through the the nine months that lead up to that there's really no mention or any type of mitigation put in place of if you start to feel these things understand that this could be what's happening to you uh there was no prior information that we received and uh unfortunately because Alaria was in such a state they actually took control of her in the united states if you're deemed a risk to society or yourself you essentially lose your freedom and while i was in the front of the hospital trying to figure things out with the finance department Alaria called me and said they were about to take her cell phone away and they had come into the back of the hospital and whisked her away essentially over to the mental health uh, facility attached to the hospital. And Laurie didn't have a chance to say goodbye to me or her son. Uh, and that was very stressful, uh, very frustrating. And uh, we went over there <clears throat> and I thought, okay, we're in a progressive place in the US. It's going to be warm and fuzzy. It's going to be nice, beautiful garden. It was nothing like that. It, it felt like a prison essentially. I looked like a prison. It felt like a prison. It had visiting hours. It had uh, a central kind of courtyard where people would go and walk in circles. Uh, It looked like a prison. And they put Alaria in essentially what looked like prison clothes. And they told us she was going to have to be in there until they determined she was no longer a risk uh, to herself or to others. And me as somebody who's been with her half of my life and I'm in love with her and I care about her, there's we were just talking about the other day it's still one of the hardest things i've been through a lot and seen a lot of my life but when you have to essentially surrender your ability to look after the person you care about the most to some nameless people is extremely tough and they reached a point where they were comfortable after three nights and they said Alaria could go home we took Alaria home and she was so enthusiastic and she was doing great for about three days until i woke up uh one morning and this was actually the first morning that I had let my guard down. Every night, as I said, I would put bells on the door handles, I would lay on top of her with my legs slung over. So if she got out of bed, I would wake up, I was always on guard. And I felt relaxed based on how she'd been behaving. And I didn't wake up. And Alaria's family's house is right on the edge of a lake, a state park in Idaho, it's really beautiful. And she had walked down to the lake, gone into the lake and attempted to kill herself um and fortunately i think uh somebody so says is, this is
0: after she she'd been
1: uh released it was after yeah yeah less than a week after and so that entire ordeal of going in there and, and that frightening experience clearly didn't have the lasting impact that was that they were trying to achieve and that was really scary for all of us. She didn't manage to succeed. uh, But her entire family and myself, we really made it a concerted effort even more. So we had a great therapist who she liked, who she could relate, who had been through PPD herself. But we needed to look at this kind of holistically. And so Alaria actually has a master's degree in nutrition. She's very mindful about what she puts into her body. She was put on these SSRIs, which she was very mindful of not wanting to get hooked on. And so she started a process of, of, of a coordinated titration while focusing on nutrition. She got back into exercise, which I'll talk about at the end of this. And she's big into athletics and MMA, the combination of, of athletics, nutrition, titration, titrating off of some of the medication plus also, um, time you're talking this had been now five months postpartum all of those things converging started to show glimmers of hope she started to return more to herself there were less swings in her mood she started to really see joy and and light as we played with our our son and and she started to see a path and a future that she was in and uh that was by about month five or month six um but But to be really honest, she didn't truly return to baseline, amazing person that she is for probably about a year. Um, But six months was the intense, the intense part of it. And uh, yeah, it was a life changing experience. It I just if you really think about the journey and I can go into far more details that it's probably better. I don't. But she was met with various men various people who were assuming that she was dealing with this that or the other and it wasn't really until we met joe who we only had the privilege to speak to once uh, but then getting into the states in front of somebody who had experienced postpartum depression herself and we were going back to see nikki the therapist two or three times a week uh, and staying in constant contact with her that the tide started to turn. People could relate to her. Alaria could understand where this fit, that she wasn't these thoughts that she was feeling, that she would actually come out of this at a certain point. Uh, and having that education and context combined with all of the people, it really took a whole safety net of family and, and friends to pull her through this. And unfortunately, not many women are not as lucky. If you really dive into it and you see the amount of women who take their own lives, um it's it's really sad and one key piece i want to say about this and this is part of where i get on my soapbox is i have just based on my age i have plenty of friends we're in the age range now where people are starting to have kids and if you go on social media every post of somebody who has a newborn is as if a unicorn just walked into the room and there's rainbows and balloons and trumpets blowing and While yes, it's an amazing thing to have a kid and it's full of love, the reality is that puts a societal expectation on women that I need to be feeling like super mom. I need to be feeling amazing. As soon as I hold my child, it's like a beacon of light just descended from the sky. That's the pressure they feel on them. Whereas if they're feeling tired, sore, miserable, depressed, low, achy, not wanting to be doing what they're doing, they start to feel shameful and guilty for those very natural feelings. And as a result, they suppress them. They don't reach out. They don't talk to people. They deal with these things alone. And uh, <clears throat> I think that's a big part of the societal issue and why postpartum depression is as prevalent as it is. Yeah, and it goes,
0: it goes back to, you know, all, all the studies that have come out in the last 10 years showing the, the mental health impact of, of, you know, social media um, you know, well done studies that, that as you say, you know, one, one of the key findings show that, that the person we, we, uh, we portray is, or, or our lives are, are, are just the good bits. Mm. Um, so you don't see, you know, the, the, the bad days and whatnot. But interestingly, you say that I was, I was listening, I was reading an article the other day and it, and it, was describing how that that is not a you know it's not new unique to modern social media if you think of it you know back in the day when we had a camera and we we would um you know go to the shop and and get the photos um developed and stuff i mean we were just taking we were told to just take pictures of you know birthday parties, people mm. smiling so that that experience of of photos is i think that's where it comes from not necessarily social media in itself. And then it evolved into then being able to portray ideas Mm. and thoughts and status updates. And it, and it carried that positive, you know, cultural aspect of it it negating, you know, all all the negative stuff. Yeah. Um, So yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It's good to, you know, know what friends, colleagues are up to, you, but there's a lot of evidence that's shown that, that, um, yeah, from a mental health perspective, it's, it's not, not the best. So the, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, you know, as, as you point out, you know, you guys, you, you know, you're both, you know, super into sports and, and being and nutrition. Um, so I'm, and both very, you know, smart, I'm sure you did loads of reading and due diligence, you know, before the the birth and you knew everything and you mentioned you know this is one of the aspects you, you re- weren't really exposed to um you know what advice would you give sort of new parents or people you know about to have kids on on how they could you know equip themselves to maybe learn about more
1: there's plenty of material out there in terms of the benefits of exercise and and how that allows women's bodies to be better prepared. Uh, as they're, There's plenty of literature out there for people to look up in that regard, but specific to postpartum depression, I would just say it's something to be familiar with, not something to be fearful of as if it's a uh, likely outcome, which it's not, but it's very important for the women or their partners to be able to identify some of the initial signs which are very distinct from baby blues, which all of us have heard about. And when you read about postpartum depression, there are, there are some clear signs. And when it gets to postpartum psychosis, which can also actually involve hallucinations and things of that nature, uh, it's, it's a very sharp, sharp distinct, distinction. So having the ability to at least be aware if something is not right and not feeling stigmatized to speak about it Um, Be in an environment where you have somebody to speak to. If you don't have a supporting partner, supporting family member, hopefully you have some other resource, whether that be a therapist or somebody else or even just a doctor that you trust uh, that you can go to. Uh, I think that's key. Uh, It's not about creating fear. fear. It's just about creating awareness. Um, So you listen to yourself and don't try to stifle what you're feeling. And don't be Mm -hmm. ashamed. You know,
0: we've been working in healthcare for a while now, and I think we, we both agree that it's slowly getting better. You know, maybe, I think 10 years ago, if you went to Indonesia, you know, Mexico, you know, probably, you know, talking about anxiety, depression, suicide, you know, was was almost inexistent, you know, outside of the the inpatient sort of setting. It's getting a little bit better. It has a long, long way to go um i was wondering if you could you know talk to us uh, about sort of the 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 efforts you know laria and, and the work you guys are doing to to sort of bridge that that gap
1: it's actually really exciting so a happy i really want to always try to if, if we have the ability when you go through tough things in life to find the silver lining to create beauty out of something that was dark and I'll tell you the happy ending to our story, then I'll tell you what we're doing now that we're really excited about. Well, I mentioned that Ilaria was adopted and uh, five years ago, before our son was born, because we were told we could never have our own kids, I took Ilaria back to her orphanage in the Philippines because we considered, well, if we're going to adopt, let's adopt from the same orphanage. And while we were there, we found all of these hard copy records from the 80s of... Uh, of when Ilaria was handed over for adoption. And it contained the name of her biological mother, the name of her uh, biological grandfather, the small town in the Philippines where they're from. It explained what her mother did. Her mother was 17 and unwed. And, and so she came and Lari was born in a women's shelter. We had some basic information. And uh, well, about a year ago, although Ilaria was doing great, uh, you know, we would still talk and reflect on the postpartum experience and I just felt inspired, with Alaria's permission, to try to find her biological mother. And so, what do you do? Now, the Philippines, like many you know developing countries, doesn't have central apparatus to go find. You know, there's not some database uh, that you can just tap into. So, I initially thought, well, the key pillars of that society, the infrastructure end to end, is the church. Uh, everybody goes to church in the Philippines. Yeah. Um, so. I, I started reaching out to churches and I had the last name uh, and I had the name of the town where her mother was from. Again, this was back in the mid 80s and uh, no luck. Contacted the churches, no idea, sorry, sir. Okay, so I started trying the schools and the universities around that area. No luck. They suggested I try the police. Well, I felt a bit dejected and uh, put it down for a few months. One day was inspired again reached out to the police station where I had the phone number, and on that very same day, went back to the church in that town and decided, don't call the church, go on the Facebook page of that church. So I'm getting back to the positive side of social media. Uh, And I found every person who attends that church or who had been tagged in a picture at that church with the same last name, and I just started messaging them on Facebook. This is... This is my name. This is my wife's story. This is the name of her her biological mother. This is the name of the grandfather. And like about 30 minutes after me calling the police station, they call me, they sent me an email and said, Sir, sir, please call us back. Sir, Betty is in the police station. Betty's the name of Alaria's biological mom. And of course, I'm like beside myself, kind of can't believe this is this is real. And almost in sync at the same time. Facebook started pinging, ding, ding, ding. And people were responding to my message saying, Oh, Betty's my sister. Betty's my cousin. Betty's wow. my friend. Uh, and I actually couldn't believe it was happening and called back to the police station. They said, sir, Betty just left, but she left a phone number for you to call. And I went and told Alaria, who, as you can imagine was speechless. And long story short, we ended up setting up, uh, A call, um, which was translated by Betty's sister. So, Alaria's aunts, because her mom doesn't actually speak English, her biological mom. And uh, this was about a year ago. We set up a Zoom call, and it was one of the most profound things I've been involved in to stand there off to the side and see Betty make face to face contact essentially with her daughter. And neither one of them had seen each other before. And as you can imagine, extremely emotional. And for Betty to tell Alaria, I did not want to give you up. I I was misguided by relatives that led me think I was just going there to give birth. But because I was out of wedlock, there was stigma, there was shame attached with it, and so I was tricked into giving you up. I've always wondered where you were. I've always loved you. I've always thought about you on your birthday. I mean, it was mind-boggling. And uh,
0: I mean, Chris, let me
1: just say, if
0: you're and Alaria's life story does not get picked up by Netflix. I, I don't know what but will. This is unbelievable.
1: Oh, it, I mean, just talking about it, it's still pretty emotional because Alaria spent the last year getting to know this completely hidden side to her identity. And it turns out Alaria has siblings. She has two sisters and a brother. And her mother had always actually kept this secret. So nobody in her family, none of the siblings, her husband... Uh, it's a lot, obviously she had a laria with a different man um, but uh, none of them knew about this and it was an upheaval but also a reckoning and a healing not just for laria but for Betty and now they're in touch routinely like weekly and monthly basis she's on a family chat group with all of wow. these people in the Philippines and some skeptical people I know were saying Chris you know they're just going to come ask for money and that hasn't been the case whatsoever in this last year. Not a single person has asked for money. They have been unbelievably loving, sending nothing but supportive and welcoming messages to Laria, And it's been a huge amount of closure and healing for Laria to understand that that narrative she had told herself subconsciously that she was given up because she wasn't worthy was not true. She was always loved from day one and, uh, now she knows that, and she gets to speak to both mothers that she has and and they both love her um wow
0: that's un- unbelievable and and um yeah remarkably uh fortuitous ending, well, not ending but you know sort of progression to, but you know here every day um I have a lot of family members on my side that are that are also adopted. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they haven't been as, as fortunate, you know, to, to go through that process, but, um, but, uh, I was just curious, was that, so that was after or before the, the, the pregnancy was oh, no, no, before, no. right?
1: No, no, no. Uh, we found Betty last year. So, oh, okay. Cause so I remember,
0: I remember meeting you and saying that you, you were trying to look, but um I, I yeah that's the last i heard and that was that was years ago
1: yeah so that would have been we we went to her orphanage in manila five years ago and that we found it. that information and i had done some basic looking typing the name into facebook there's a million people with that name beatrice Biazon, <laughs> in in the philippines yeah. so i figured it was fruitless there there wouldn't be an opportunity and going through this whole experience of postpartum depression seeing how Alaria has bonded so amazingly with our son and truly it's her first blood relative she's ever known and and all the conversations we've had around it she gave me permission to look and uh it was a lot of online detective work and a lot of luck but it really inspired into what i want to tell you what we're doing and Alaria, um she's always been very big into mini sports. She's five foot tall, but she was the captain of the high school volleyball team. Uh, her her mom is an athletic director, but Alara is also very big into martial arts, BJJ, Muay Thai, boxing, you name it. And um, right around five months, as I mentioned, when we were back in the States and she wanted to start looking after her body, not just take medication, but nutrition and exercise. She got back into martial arts at a gym there, in a very small town in Idaho and there was a coach there named coach Francis he he's trained golden golden gloves boxing and Alaria went in there and she was training with him and uh she explained she just had a kid and he said hey so you're a mama fighter and Alaria came back and told me that term and I maybe it's the business development person in me but I thought okay MMA is in the word mama and plus, MMA is such a fast-growing sport that caters almost specifically to men and the masculine side of of life and energy. But there's so many women who participate in it. Um,
0: can can you just quickly describe to to the listeners what MMA is for those oh, that don't aren't familiar so, with it?
1: Well, MMA is a, it's kind of a aggregation of disciplines. So mixed martial arts. Uh, most people would be familiar with the brand UFC ultimate fighting championship which is one of the fastest growing sports brands in the world Um, and a lot of people look at it as sheer brutality whereas a lot of people who are attracted to it what they find is self-discipline self-mastery perseverance it takes a lot of huge amount of dedication to become a black belt in something like bjj you're talking 20 plus years worth of work and discipline and honing your body and listening to your body. So it's not what's, just about, what's PJJ? I'm sorry, uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so it's not just about, you know, trash talk and brutalizing your opponent. A lot of the true martial artists who aren't always represented by these, you know, megastar athletes, but real martial artists, they find beauty in self discipline and mastery. And so mixed martial arts has always been something that compelled Alaria. And uh, so we'd kicked around this idea of of a brand called Mama Fighter, but we didn't want to just create another sports brand or anything of that nature. We wanted it to have a purpose and have a meaning. And Alaria has spent the last six months really kind of conceptualizing everything. And she's already got merchandise and she's created a community literally just in the last two weeks and launched it On social media which is about creating a sports brand tied in to people sharing their authentic stories of struggle stories that you don't need to be shameful of whether it be mental health or any other you know story of of trying to overcome the obstacles that real people deal with and create a community around that and yes there's a martial arts component to it but it doesn't have to be purely martial arts related Uh, but Martial arts has that ethos of of kind of conquering, you know, obstacles. So she's launched that brand and she's already started telling some stories and posting them um, on on Instagram. And uh, she's already got professional fighters starting starting to wear the clothes. But on March eighth, International Women's Day, Alaria will be posting on social media a video that we did uh, with a professional dancer who's uh, Filipino-American, just like Alaria is. There's spoken word to it, there's a cinematographer, and it's really chronicling Alaria's postpartum depression experience. The reason we wanted to do that in an artistic way that's visually appealing but powerful is that we used to sit there on the couch, and I would look on YouTube trying to find some sort of a video that Alaria could relate to about what postpartum depression was like, not just you know some prescriptive type of a video but this is what it feels like and there were none and mm. so <clears throat> we've created that video and we're going to be posting it on march 8th and i was very recently introduced to a woman named robin Lim, who was the 2011 cnn person of the year and she's a, a midwife world famous as you can imagine now and she's based here in bali she's based up in ubud and uh, we're actually going to meet her on monday but she's getting involved in the project and she wants to spread the message of uh, essentially hope, but by not sharing just the superficial details, sharing the reality of what it felt like to go through that. And it's dark, but people who are in that dark place need to see that they can get out of the dark place they're in. And so we're conveying the nitty gritty of it through this through this video. And Ilaria has launched it underneath that brand that she's building to, to really spread a message around maternal health. Oh, that's that's amazing, um, and we'll be sure to put a, a link uh,
0: for the listeners attached to to, to the broadcast uh, of this episode. Um, but yeah, I mean, so so needed the as you say, you know, maternal mental health, postpartum depression is is uh, one of the many I'd say areas of mental health that is is um, still. Probably not well understood in in most you know clinical settings I mean I remember you know being in in med school and and even uh training in psychiatric wards um and and still not really covering you know the 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 fundamentals and the basics of it as as you know or you you might know in med school or, or in clinical practice mental health is such a difficult Topic to diagnose in such a new area that we essentially have a, a sort of a book, you know, to guide us, which we don't really have in other specialties. Called the DSM Five, and it, and it's basically sort of a recipe book that's very straightforward. Okay, if you have this, you give this. Poorly understood that doctors still have to resort to that book, which you don't really do for other other specialties. So. I mean, that's the clinical side. The social part of it is probably even more lacking. And I think videos are a great way to, you know, tell stories, the science behind it, but actual real life stories and, and they can, you know, relate. That's that's amazing. That's really good. We've said when we try to roll out mental health programs, the, the first bit where we try to start is certainly destigmatizing and creating awareness, not only amongst people who are are going through, you know, mental health conditions, but the people around them that equip them to to help. And that awareness piece and that destigmatization is, I think, is critical. It, it reminds me of of the campaign in in Mexico on on breast cancer awareness. You know, one of the, with cancer, one of the key things is early diagnosis, if not the most important. Mm -hmm. And so to teach women to, uh, and encourage them to go get checked, uh, one of the initiatives the government was playing around with and, and we were advising at some point was, was on painting all the sections in the hospital where, that are dedicated to breast cancer screening pink. Mm -hmm. um so that they were really popped out you know you'd see these buildings you know those old ugly hospital buildings and then you'd see one section of it just bright hot pink Mm -hmm. um and uh so yeah that was one of my favorite initiatives but um yeah awareness and you know getting people on board
1: what's interesting i mean i have a lot of experience in asia and as you know every region and every country within that region is different uh so i'm not trying to paint with a broad Brush, but by and large in Southeast Asia, there's probably a bit more stigma still around mental health and reaching out and and seeking counseling. But what's interesting is that in terms of maybe some ways to mitigate postpartum depression, it's it's kind of the inverse. Whereas in the West, we're very independent, self-deterministic, we're our parents, we're gonna suffer alone, just as Laurie and I were trying to do. In Southeast Asia, it's very communal. Everybody, the entire family and the entire community and, and the general network that they have, they get involved in the kid's life. And in Malaysia, where we were, there's a practice called confinement, which at a distance, some people may say it's some ancient tradition that needs to be get, get, gotten rid of. But if you think about it, what confinement is, is they, the, the, the mother is just given birth to their kid stays at home for a month, and they often hire people, but it's also family members who come and do all the cooking, all the cleaning, all the caretaking beyond breastfeeding of the kid. The woman gets daily massages, and they're really trying to help her recover and adjust to the life and transition into the life of being a mother. And when I was talking to some of the mental health people in Malaysia around it, uh, some of them were at least saying this had an impact on lower incidence rate of postpartum depression there i don 't know if that's true or not, but what I do know is there's a lot of value in you know in our globalized world we 're all separated from our families, but there 's a lot of value in having a tight social network around you to help with you know raising kids
0: Oh absolutely and um... I think the Philippines uh, is very similar to Mexico because, you know it was it was conquered by the Spaniards. And you know one of the things they left was not only religion but sort of that family sort of extended network. And, and so I remember going to the Philippines as a Mexican, really seeing the similarities like with you know extended family and how how much people you know support each other. I really want to thank you for sharing your your story. I can, you know, feel your passion and and I definitely think with mental health this is one of the things we need to do is talk about our own experience, our own ways that that, that we you know suffered but also you know got through it to lower that barrier and and deal with that stigma so i really want to thank you for uh sharing you know your your personal story um really proud to call you my friend really proud about all the other stuff you're doing which uh we'd love to have you back at some point to so talk us through all that but um yeah just really thanks
1: no i really appreciate it just for giving the opportunity to help spread the message uh about what we all consider a very important topic. And you were a very important part of that story. I mean, I just reached out to you and you flicked me over to some people, but that was a very critical, very critical juncture. So, Laria and I definitely thank you as well.
0: Well, I'm I'm just happy, you know, I could help. Um, But uh, yeah, Chris and all my love uh, to Trey, to Laria, hopefully see you guys in Bali soon. thanks for listening folks if you enjoyed that please hit
1: subscribe like and share see you next time